Hello and welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. I'm Jennifer Johnston and during this series I'll be talking to prominent music professionals about the relationship between food and music and everything in between. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a subscription-only online cookbook and mixology resource written by musicians from all over the world, sharing their food traditions and tastes to raise money for Help Musicians UK, a charity financially assisting musicians adversely affected by the music industry shutdown during the COVID-19 pandemic. Food is not just a universal need, but also a universal link to our homes and communities and a universal pleasure, just like music. We rely on food in the same way that we rely on music during extraordinary times like these, to bring structure and a feeling of normality to our days, to alleviate boredom and frustration, to entertain, to strengthen the feeling of community, and to bring comfort, joy and solace. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a means of digitally breaking bread with each other, of sharing and appreciating our diverse food cultures, and of creating new memories. Please subscribe at www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's a one-off payment of only £10, every penny of which is a donation to Help Musicians UK. And you can also follow our progress on our dedicated Facebook and Instagram pages. I'm delighted that my guests this week are the internationally renowned mezzo-sopranos Tara Erocht and Angela Brower, who talk to me about lockdown, rediscovering a sense of community, life on the road, coping when things go wrong on stage in live performance, and getting back to what they do best, singing. Now to introduce my guests, Tara Erocht from Dundalk in Ireland and Angela Brower from Arizona in the United States first became friends when they joined the Bavarian State Opera Studio for Young Artists, after which both joined the ensemble of that venerated house. Now, both enjoying huge careers internationally, they've remained the best of friends and both still call Munich home. I'm delighted that they now join me. And welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. Hello, Tara. Hello, Angela. Thank you so much for joining me. It's so brilliant to see you both. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks a million. Um, It's obviously a wee bit strange, but I've actually gotten really used to this kind of slower pace. Um, And already I've happened to think about, hmm, shall I start setting my alarm a little bit earlier and learn how to get back into a routine? I feel the same way. I'm, you can't see me, but I'm surrounded by boxes. I've, I've kind of, you know, started doing bits and bobs around the, the flat and just, I'm going to start painting. So it's great to be like forced to be home to do like house maintenance stuff. Um, but yeah, it's kind of strange. Now, Tara, you're in Ireland where you're still in full lockdown until next week, at least. Has it been weird locally or have you sort of felt like it's just that normal life just more at home well we took things like to the extreme in Ireland so I was very very lucky I was working in New York until the 12th of March and on the 12th of March at lunchtime they cancelled the run of shows 
And I was lucky to get on the second last flight from New York to Dublin, which was on the morning of the 13th of March, because on the 14th of March, they stopped the flights. So I got in and luckily for me, because I arrived on the morning of the 14th of March, I wasn't made do, um, we had a residential place where you would go when you arrived in Dublin and you'd have to do a 14 day quarantine there before they even let you home. Whereas I was exempt from that because I got in before lunchtime. So that was the luck of God and nothing else. Straight away, they enforced a two kilometer radius in Ireland. So you could only exercise in these two kilometers. You couldn't speak to anybody in any other household. And my own sister, because she had been working in the UN, also in New York, she flew back on the same flight as me. But she decided to self-isolate because it had been rumoured that there may have been cases in some of the places she was working. So even in that instance, then we had to kind of stay away from her for those 14 days and like deliver the food on a tray to her room and we didn't kind of see her. It was really strange, you know. And um, very luckily, there were no cases in our area. And actually, even in our county, there were some recorded cases in the county hospital, but that was because it was been used as an overflow hospital for Dublin. So there were very few cases in our catchment area, thank goodness. But it was only, I mean, we had the two kilometer radius for weeks and weeks, and then it went to five kilometers. If you wanted to go outside of those five kilometers, you had to have a letter from the guards um, or your place of work. And it was, I mean, it was really, it's like an out-of-body experience. It was like being in a movie. So, Did yeah. you have to have food delivered? Very luckily, my parents are quite, to an extent, self-sufficient. Um, and because it was coming into springtime, all the vegetables were coming into their own. We could keep chickens. Um, we didn't have milk or whatever, but we have a local shop and they were getting quite big deliveries every day. So that was quite fine. But it turned out then that like, you know, where you used to, the neighbours used to come in and just take chicken, uh, take eggs, excuse me. Um, so then you were like packing eggs and leaving them at the bottom of the driveway in case anybody needed anything. And there were other people doing the same, like baking bread and leaving things on the driveway that maybe they didn't need and maybe a neighbour would. So it was really kind of, it brought back a beautiful kind of sense of community that I think in the rushed life we've gotten used to, kind of, it didn't get lost, but this really brought it back and and brought it to a force. It was really cosy in one sense. I know that sounds really disrespectful to anybody that was suffering during the period, but it was a really cosy village atmosphere. Oh, it's just lovely to hear that. Our general lives are so crazy. I mean, you were saying to me earlier that you haven't been at home for this long since you were at school. It's unbelievable. And luckily for me, I still have my grandparents here. Um, he's in his 90s and she's in her 80s. So I've gotten to spend loads of time with them because he is a farm. So you're like screaming over the field. And, <laughs> you know, but of course, I came home with the start of lambing season. And it was really a lovely time to kind of be here. And even though there were terrible, terrible things happening in the world, you could see new life coming, you know, and the the flowers blossomed and the trees bloomed and things were happening. You could see that the world was kind of replenishing itself. And it was just a brilliant time to get to spend at home because I suppose if I was traveling like usual in a city that maybe I didn't know, I wouldn't notice so much, you know, the city coming to life. Whereas here in a place that I know so well, I was just, I I cannot explain how lucky I was to get home in the nick of time (laughs) to experience all of that. I have another colleague who was working on a cruise ship um, in a quartet and she came home the day after me and she had to spend two weeks in a hotel on the outskirts of Dublin alone. Mm-hmm. You couldn't leave the room. You were called every day to make sure you were still there. Your temperature was taken every day. 
um, you had to have your food delivered or, you know, just a, a crazy thing. I know it was for the benefit of the community, but still I'm, I, I'm so lucky that I didn't do that. Obviously when I came home, I didn't see anybody for that fortnight. It was only my own close family. So we, we weren't in contact with anybody, but I have huge respect for the people who, and a lot of musicians who had to go into that situation so close but yet so far to be at home yeah I was really lucky I was on the second to last flight out of Denmark before they shut the border Um, I was working in Sweden and I got halfway across the bridge from Malmo to Copenhagen and I had my phone on and I saw this big alert saying Denmark's shutting and I got to the airport and there was no one there (laughs) it was the funniest thing then I got on the plane and there were only 10 people on the flight it was sort of that was very surreal but also I sat in Yo Sushi in Copenhagen Airport completely by myself. And they just let me eat whatever I wanted because <laughs> there was no one else there. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, Angela, you're in Munich, which of course is a city that of course Tara and I know very well. Um, and is actually technically Tara's home too. I think Germany has been quite different in some respects, hasn't it? From what we've both experienced. Yeah, they, they locked down pretty hard at the beginning. Um, the numbers were getting really high and um, I was coming back from Austria and was going in between Munich and a a city called Klagenfurt uh, to do some shows. And I left, you know, we had, I think we had four more shows to go and I I left saying, okay, see you guys next week because there was a couple days in between. And it was so weird because we knew that the world was starting to to lock down, but there were no restrictions. And so our shows were continuing and until I just get an email saying uh, we're not able to finish the run of your shows, we were doing Cendrillon in Klagenfurt, and um, and then and then and then every day after that, some new restriction was being placed. It was it was like watching the world unfold before my eyes, like just this COVID pandemic. And then I remember the next day it was then it was deemed a pandemic. It was declared this is what it is. And then, then the borders were shut and then the travel ban and then everything just, just kind of froze. And it was so interesting to watch that happen because Germany um, immediately said, okay, we're, we're issuing a curfew. Um, You're, you're not able to be on the streets more than two people. Um, And I live across the street from a beautiful, huge park and since everybody couldn't go to work, everybody was in the park and they were, you know, lounging and just having a good time. And there were police patrolling the park, telling people to get up, to not sit on the grass and to just keep walking and use it as, as sport, not to lounge in the park. And it was so interesting. And I'll never forget just how quiet the streets were. I live kind of on an intersection and at night just and during the day, everything was just so quiet. It was a little eerie, but I kind of enjoyed the peace <laughs> that it brought a little bit. Um, it, it was really interesting. Yeah, so Germany was really strict at the beginning, and now we're basically, we're okay. All the shops are open now. We're required to wear a mask in public uh, indoor uh, shops, but outside you're, you're okay to not wear a mask. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's not over yet, though. I think the numbers are still going mm-hmm. up in certain, like like Berlin and certain metropolitan areas. We're kind of spread out a little bit here in Munich, which is nice. 
and I live kind of on the outskirts of the main hustle and bustle of the city. So, and because I have that park, it's been nice to just walk and get some fresh air, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting to watch the world kind of slow down and uh, you know, for, for, for good or bad, you know? Well, there there have been times when I've really wanted to take a shotgun to the dawn chorus. The birds (laughs) are so loud at four in the morning. Yeah. Four in the morning is when they start. Exactly. Oh, it's just so <laughs> annoying. If you're light, if you're a light sleeper like me, crazy. In the UK, supermarkets were fairly patchy as to what you could get hold of. And obviously, Tara, you've had stuff grown locally, which has been brilliant. But have you struggled to get anything, Angela? No, it was really Germany? interesting. Uh, at the beginning, it was fine. Um, but then as the pandemic kind of you know, week after week, I started noticing, oh my goodness, people had hoarded, of course, <laughs> toilet paper, all <laughs> like in every country, right? That was like Amazing. something you couldn't get. And then, and then of course, then, then flour and sugar and like everybody was started baking. And so you couldn't get yeast or flour or sugar. Um, but you know, yeah, the fruits and veg, like the produce, uh, they, it kind of went down a couple weeks. It was really scarce, but it's now back to normal. Um, and, and it's so strict now that they not only do we have to wear masks, but they regulate the amount of people in the supermarket. And it's a, it's a small supermarket. So you have to kind of wait outside. And that's just happened more recently in the last couple of weeks where there, there's a line outside <laughs> wrapping around the corner, um, waiting for everybody to you know get checked out so that you can go in. And, and, and then when you go in, you realize, oh, I, I mean, it's, it's a different atmosphere. So you just kind of yeah. go shopping really quickly. It's not a, oh, what do they have today? Like it's, nope, get your food and get out of there because you feel bad. There's a huge line like down the street. So it's such a different experience just going to the supermarket, at least in my neighborhood. It's the same here too. Like, but we've had to do that since the beginning. So you just queue outside, rain, hail or shine. But I think... Well, certainly here, it was like everybody decided they were going to be the next Mary Berry. (laughs) Um, And there was one day in all of that that her website crashed. Her and Paul Hollywood. (laughs) Because people were trying to do um, yeast starters. And Mary Berry had a recipe for some kind of drop scones or something. I don't know. It was like, it was on the telly one evening. It was so funny. (laughs) But you could not get flour. Not for love nor money. And one day, I was in Tesco's. And we would only, we would get permission to go shopping once a week because it was outside because we live in the country. It was outside the two kilometer radius. So you were told which day you could go or whatever. So ours was a Wednesday night uh, between half eight and half nine. And um, I found this 10 kilogram bag of white flour. I thought, oh, I'm taking that because you know what? I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to need it. I couldn't bake to warm myself. As both of you know, I do not follow instructions under the best of circumstances. <laughs> but anyway, we bought it. I can tell you, we weren't long going through that. Between, you know, there were birthdays and cakes and then there were just days where you needed cookies or something else, you know, but it was incredible. And I've seen people at the checkouts trying to barter with other people, either for their toilet paper or their flour. (laughs) That was the best. I mean, the greatest. (laughs) Flour just wasn't available in the UK and it wasn't anything to do with not being able to have the mills open. Apparently it was all to do with the packaging 
that the yeah. packaging plants were shut so that they, no one was manufacturing the small bags. So you could buy a 20 kilo bag of flour. Right. But you couldn't get a one kilo bag. It was, it was really weird. <laughs> it was oh, very perverse. We were uh, most of the time six adults in this house. And um, we decided, I don't know why, but we decided to do like themed cooking weeks. So like there was like Pie Week and French Week and American Week and it got really competitive. Um, <laughs> Indian Week was like beyond hard, but I'm the queen of, of making non bread now. And that's kept things really interesting. Then there was one week where you had to keep every dinner like under five euros. So like for six people, under five, like really interesting stuff. And that actually opened my mind a lot to other ways of cooking or, you know, just thinking about how to put things together. And so that, that was, yeah, that was really interesting. It's very much a thing that our grandmothers would have been used to and wouldn't have thought about. I'm sure Absolutely. your grandma probably would have said Tara when she was a little girl that there just wasn't the choice then. Exactly. We're completely spoiled in this day. Yeah. And or even like when we did pie week, I mean, I called her every day to get a recipe, <laughs> you know, and she wasn't that cheating. Was, oh, of course it was. But like incredible how she could take what you had, you thought there was nothing in your store cupboard, you know, and she could make masterpieces out of like, you know, a tin of chickpeas and a thing of mince and, and you make up your pastry. Like really clever. Um, they really had to use everything they had when they had it. And they really were able to stretch food. It's, it's quite incredible. Um, it's very interesting. I, in writing the cookbook for Notes from Musicians' Kitchens, um, was contacted by the director of the Kirsten Flagstadt Museum in Norway gas. to tell me that there was a book in their archive written in 1950 called As You Like It, which was a cookbook from uh, the rich and famous of the day, written for returning prisoners of war. I mean, this is the most hilariously <laughs> virtue signaling thing I've ever seen. Anyway, a copy sold at Sotheby's in New York for $12,000 a couple of years ago. And then I looked on eBay in the UK and I got one for £8. So I feel quite chuffed about that, firstly. Amazing. Um, and I'm now about to start cooking the recipes in it including things like Enid Blyton's cherry cake. Um, and then there's Noel Coward's recipes, Eleanor Roosevelt. There's, I mean, major Hollywood stars, you know, hilarious. Amazing. That's very much of the era that your grandma would have been from. And what's very interesting is the fact that, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt's recipe is something called, now, Angela, I want to ask you about this, huckleberries. Do you ever heard of huckleberries? Oh, yeah. What are they? They're berries. I mean, I don't but know. Are they... Are they, what are they like that we would recognize? I don't even know what they are. Oh gosh. Um, they would be kind of like um, in the same family as like a black currant, maybe. Yeah, so quite um, tart. Yeah. So hilariously, this is, I suppose you'd call it her version of a summer fruit pudding in English terms, which is where you lie in a bowl with bread and some form of um, sugar syrup or something. And then you marinate the berries and you normally put sugar in it. This literally is bread with berries mashed together. I don't think that's going to be something I'm going to enjoy. <laughs> it sounds a bit mossy, but you know. It also sounds very not sweet. And I think the <laughs> thing is that in our generation, we have such sweet tastes now. Because yeah. there's sugar in literally everything. So it's really interesting that you found that, Tara, that you have to be ingenious to sort of cope with. 100%. What, what or even there. One week, we have all these trees, you know, outside. <laughs> I was like, what the hell's on that? 
and there were these pears. What do you do with pears? But I poached them and actually they were delightful with a little like vanilla ice cream. And I didn't put anything else on them. But then I reduced the poaching water to a syrup and kept that to put in other things. Delish. I mean, delish. Can I also make two suggestions if you've got any left? Pear sorbet with grappa in it is unreal. Um, And it's very straightforward to make. Um, When you, when you've eating it, when it's freshly made, it tastes a little bit like raisins, but out with an alcoholic taste to it. And then the other thing I love making is phyllo tarts with pear and blue cheese that you bake in the oven. Delicious. And you also then put some quince jam on the base of it. So that's two things to suggest that are very straightforward that you can use your pears for. Perfect. Perfect. Oh, delightful. So now, as an American and a fan of... I was about ben, to say. Ben and Jerry's... <laughs> an American. Here's, here's a funny fact. Ben and Jerry's has the, the ice cream brand in Vermont, in America. They have a graveyard where they buried all of their old like ideas that didn't work. And one of them was called O-Pear Ice Cream. <laughs> So uh, apparently pears and ice cream don't mix (laughs) that well. Amazing. Now, Angela, you are American and that means that your family are currently mostly there and therefore in a very different situation to the one you find yourself in. How has Arizona been? Has it have they had a big incidence of the virus? Yeah, it's uh, it's so interesting. When this all started back in March, my family were like, "Come home, come home," and I just had this feeling like, "Hmm, no, <laughs> I don't want to go home. I want to see how this all pans out." And if I had gone home, then I would have had to quarantine for fourteen days. I have a very at risk sibling, and my parents are also older, and I didn't want to. Why, you know, why would I do that? So it just made sense to stay here. And so throughout the weeks and months, I can't believe it's already the end of June. Um, I've been watching what's been happening. And of, of course, on the East Coast in New York and was the epicenter. And it has traveled through the country now. And it's quite concerning on the West Coast. And Arizona, in fact, just a couple of days ago, I think Monday, made headlines uh, because the numbers had spiked Whereas before they were like, oh, it's not, it's not really here. What's the big deal? Now it's, it's arrived. And so, uh, you know, just gentle reminders to my parents <laughs> to make sure that they are social distancing and wearing masks and they, they are, and they're doing, they're doing such a great job. Um, but it is also, it's just interesting what's been happening as we've all been watching where it's going. And now it's in the Southern hemisphere as well. And it's just, it's just, Brazil in particular seems to be in big trouble currently. The interesting thing about that though is the implications. I mean, Europe, they're now talking about banning Americans from traveling to Europe, which is, I mean, something in our lifetime we'd never have imagined would happen. I know. So I'm I'm glad that you made the decision not to go back. Me too. You'd have been completely stuck. Absolutely. I I, always listen to that little voice (laughs) inside. it's a good voice to listen to but during this period um i think com- comfort food from home has been quite important for you am i right angela oh my like goodness. cooking marshmallow <laughs> brownies which are the most obscenely over the top sweet things you, i've ever witnessed you know, if you guys don't get diabetes after, <laughs> after eating them 
<laughs> after making a recipe, then it, I haven't, you know, I haven't done my job. No, just kidding. It's all, it's so sweet. It's so, so sweet. And a lot of people here in Europe are like, whoa, this is way too sweet. <laughs> but but course, I think I, I should explain that you, of all people, I've never seen anyone demolish a box of cream eggs, Cadbury's cream eggs like Angela. Are you kidding? Yeah. That's my childhood. I grew up with that kind of thing. And I love, and so we don't get it over here in Germany. So when I'm in the UK, I'm like, yes, Cadbury eggs. And this recipe, this brownie recipe is something we would make every year for my dad's birthday. So it's just, Aww. there's a lot of childhood, like home type nostalgic memories that are associated with food. I, it's, it's powerful, isn't it? Tis, I think yeah. when we travel as much as we do as well, having a taste from home is really critical now. Us three in particular know all about the English cafe in Munich because that in particular for me has been a hangout over the years because oh, yeah. it's sometimes very important to be able to have tea and crumpets. Yeah, it is. And, yeah, it is. And to not be able to access the things that if you're feeling a bit lonely or a bit fed up, you can't get. I mean, every country is so different. What do you miss about Ireland, Tara, when you're away? I suppose, so for me like background wise where my parents live is on my grandfather's farm so the rest of our family also all live on this same mountain and there's quite a community so let's say if I was at home and everybody else was at work well I'd go down the road to one of my aunts or I'd go up the road to my grandparents or I'd there's this kind of community spirit all the time and that was something that we built up fairly quickly in Munich from kind of opera studio time right through it's still something that's there and yet when I go kind of let's say you know I go to Berlin or Vienna it's just not the same because I don't have that community but one thing as an Irish person I am blessed that in every city you go to anywhere in the world there is an Irish pub and you can be guaranteed there's an Irish person in it (laughs) (laughs) and I have no problem going and sitting at the bar somebody will speak to you I usually order food and when they hear you're Irish they'll go and there'll always be a roast dinner. It won't be on the menu, but it'll always be there. Mm. And you don't know what it's going to be, (laughs) chicken or beef or whatever, who cares? And so like the kind of eating in company is something I I miss a lot, a busy kind of dining room table. I even, I don't mind at all going to a restaurant alone. If the restaurant's busy and I see other people kind of enjoying their food, I need that buzz and that noise. Um, And the other thing is that even though there can be terrible things, of course, like anywhere else, I find that in general, the Irish mentality is slightly more positive than it tends to be in other countries. And sometimes I need like 24 hours at home just to recharge that battery. And then I've got enough, you know, even to share. But they're the two kind of things that I I definitely miss when I'm on the road, yeah. Even I go to Irish pubs and I'm only from <laughs> Liverpool. <laughs> I'm sure because that's practically it- Ireland. It is. I mean, we do we do call Ireland West Liverpool. Um, exactly. So it's it's but it's true that if you're abroad and struggling and you don't know anyone, even I with my Scouse accent don't struggle in an Irish pub because they're like, oh, we know where you're from, yeah. and we can wave to Dublin over the Irish Sea from here. Perfect. So it's fine. And that there are a huge amount of Americans in Europe though too, aren't there? Have you found a community of Americans, or do you still choose to? stick to the people you meet through church and through work? I'm, I'm not a very social person. I'm kind of an introvert. 
So I, I'm blessed with a great church community that has people from all over the world. And I go to a congregation, it's the international congregation. And so we've got people from every country, but a lot of Americans that are coming and just staying temporarily for jobs and then going back to the States. So it is quite nice because every month we'll have what we call a potluck and we'll bring something that we've cooked. And after church, we'll eat together. And there's a sense of community, which I find I need, um, and I get that in every country. Uh, most countries that I go to have a congregation that I can just, you know, step in and say hi. And, <laughs> um, but yeah, I need that. I think we, I think we need that in this job. Well, exactly. Totally. You're quite lucky, and I think the Mormon community worldwide is has very strong ties to each other. And in each place, you're fortunate to have that. I don't have that. I'm not Irish and I'm not a Mormon. So for me, I have to find some form of community wherever I go, which can be very temporary. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't do very much. I tend to read books, watch movies and, you know, because it's quite hard if you're only in a place for a very short time as well, particularly if you're doing concerts. Very often, I don't know a single person. I went to Indianapolis about two years ago. And apart from Katie, who's the artistic boss. Oh, yeah. Who, yeah. who's a friend, who's Irish. <laughs> I didn't know a single other person. Yeah, um, yeah. And I had a week where I had hardly any rehearsals. I was singing El Garci pictures. And yeah. at that point, you get out and walk normally, only a massive storm hit. So I was basically just trapped in my hotel for days. It was yeah. really quite depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody could do anything about that. But that is part of our life. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you have to just cope. In terms of your family, though, Angela, are they, how are they feeling about the fact that you're not at home? Have they, have they been all right? Have they been worried about you? Well, I think they are just continuously worried about me because I'm overseas and they don't know what's going on. And um, I am the only one of my, I'm one of seven and all my other siblings live in in the States. um, And most of them all live in Arizona close to my parents. So I think my father in particular is wondering what his little girl is is doing (laughs) so far away. Um, but I have to reassure, I talk to them every week. Thank goodness for FaceTime, right? To video chat so you can see somebody's face. And I, I talk to them every week and reassure them that I'm okay. And I think that brings them a bit of peace of mind. Um, and for me too, to know that they're all right. And, and thank goodness for our singing community. I know that, you know, if you don't have a church congregation or you don't have family as you travel, I, I always feel like I have you guys. And that's, that means so much to me. And I know you, you feel the same. Yeah. I think certainly in Munich, that community has been invaluable over the years that I've been there. I mean, the three of us in particular have spent many a day having cups of tea. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, but that is very important because it means that you are then rooted in some form of a community. And although if and if I'm away by myself, we all find social media quite helpful in terms of being able to keep in touch with people who are spread globally uh, away from us that we may not see very often. I mean, I haven't seen either of you in person for a while because we're never in the same city at the same time. So it's, I think it's valuable in terms of friendship that we have actually quite a small community in, in opera. And most of us do sort of know each other, even if yeah. by reputation alone, it's not a stranger situation. So and that, makes, no. that makes it nice when you, when you have a new job and you, you're meeting people for the first time, they go, oh, I know your friend Tara, or I know Jen. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. like it, it, it is kind of comforting to go, okay, we're all 
part of this little family. Exactly. This little world. Exactly. And I kind of break it up in two. So for opera work, so let's say like for eight years, I did nearly only opera work. For the last two, I did really a big mix of opera and concert. And in opera, I kind of tend to do the same repertoire. So it's either Rossini or Mozart and the Rossini circuit is very small. So you know everybody. Um, and Mozart is really big. It's like almost everybody. <laughs> Apart from and, me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is shocking but um you know I tend to be quite social when it comes to opera and I, and I make, make it a point especially if I'm in, I'm in a city where I really don't know anybody I will look on that website and see who the heck else is in rehearsals who else is in shows there must be somebody and they will in turn introduce you to somebody else I do that because <laughs> for fear that something should ever happen you know, when I need to call someone in the middle of the night or you need to chat to somebody or maybe somebody needs you to be that person for them. However, when I'm doing concert work, I kind of love a few days by myself. Like I was in um, Minneapolis in January and it was colder than anywhere I've ever been in my entire life. My eyelashes froze. So I just stayed in the hotel. I stayed in the hotel except for the rehearsals. And it was blissful. I mean, absolutely blissful but then me being me at the break of the rehearsals I started talking to this cellist who in turn knew this trombone player that I had been talking to at another concert like three weeks beforehand like I can even see how that community could kind of quickly grow when you're being re-invited to places or you know like we're lucky that we work in an industry where it's kind of part of our job I suppose to be able to communicate and I think I think if if we didn't have that ability, it would be very difficult to travel alone all the time. Yeah, I'm not really a fan of airports, if I'm honest. <laughs> so, you know, people are always so how exciting. I get to an airport and I'm like, oh, I need to get out of here. Um, and it's always the promise of where you're going always helps. You know? Yes. But um, if I never had to go through another airport security line ever again, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be sorry. No. Um, <laughs> It's, there are, so there are, I think for all of us, there are definite downsides to it at all. Of course. But at the moment, I think, Tara, you are one of the very few singers who have performed in this period in Ireland, in the National Concert Hall. Interesting that, because I watched it, it was a fantastic recital, but oh, very please. weird sitting, <laughs> watching you at home on a screen, knowing also you had nobody watching you in the building. How did it feel? It was extremely strange. I mean, I worked in that concert hall as an usherette. So from like the age of 17, I know it backwards and frontwards. And even backstage, there was nearly nobody. All of the cameras that were there were on a remote control and the guy doing them was in a truck out the back. There was a sound guy who'd come in and he was in a separate truck. Like those two guys couldn't even sit in the same truck. There was one stage manager. Uh, the piano tuner had come and gone. We couldn't see him. We had to leave like little notes. <laughs> All of the doors, really interestingly, from the back door to the stage were left open the entire concert because they didn't want us to touch anything or to have to touch anything. It was really surreal. I mean, the rehearsal was beautiful. I was just so happy to get back and to get to do something. And they had asked me to do a recital, which I had agreed to, of course. Then they said they couldn't do any, they couldn't provide surtitles. I said, okay but they didn't want everything to be in English. I said, okay. So I had to try and also pick a program that I was hoping would come across, but to who? There was nobody to communicate with. And I only realized that in the first song. (laughs) 
And then I thought, oh, sweet lamb of God, what am I going to do? So I just sang like the public were there. And in one sense, I could nearly, I really felt like I could feel people watching. And unlike, you know, when an opera is being live streamed, you can see the camera with the red light. So you know who's watching you. There were eight steady cams in that console. I had no idea who was looking at me or not or whatever. So I kind of just committed to it. And it was all perfectly fine until I got to the last song. And I knew I had to say something before the encore. And I thought my heart was going to break. I was delighted to be there. But I, I mean, I thrive. I need the public. I need to be telling them stories. And I found the last song very difficult. And then like the end of the concert, of course, the big faux pas of the whole evening, I turned and hugged the pianist. And I mean, I hadn't even gotten changed from my concert dress before the tweets were coming. How dare you? And the rest of us are in lock up, lockdown. Sorry. And, um, and you're so brazen with the rules. I mean, only other musicians can understand that feeling after a concert. You know, I, I, I shouldn't have done it. Raised my hands up. I know, I know, I know. But it was, it was all I could do. I had to touch somebody because I felt like I couldn't touch anybody. Does that make sense? And my whole, our whole job is trying to touch people. And, and lift people up and I didn't know if it had worked or not worked or <laughs> you know it's really really strange the other thing is because of where we live like the internet internet isn't great a huge amount of people were asking you to do you know live streams or galas and things not only can I not do it because of the internet I, I couldn't do it in my front room I, I just couldn't do it you know you, we need that kind of even just the smell of the hall you know, and the the kind of the expectation. I I don't even really know how to put it into words, but it is like that was the first time I had oxygen in my lungs since the lockdown. Well, you know? I think you've put it very eloquently, actually, in terms of how it has affected us all, because it's an emotional journey. It isn't just a question of having work removed oh, no. from us. It, it's because we're so intertwined with what we do because we produce our sound out of our own bodies. I think unless you are a singer, you perhaps don't completely appreciate how we we leave a little piece of ourselves on stage every time we step exactly. away. That's and, exactly and Not being permitted to do that is a terribly strange experience when mm-hmm. all we've done since we left school is do this. Angela, you coped in a different way by doing these fantastic lockdown songs, covers. It's so lovely to hear you sing a completely different genre of music. You're so good at it. I I grew up singing, you know, my poor piano skills, just singing, you know, music theatre or pop covers. It wasn't until I went to university that I actually learned about opera and that my voice was more suited for opera. But I, so it kind of helped me just it soothed me because it reminded me of home and uh, since I was so far away and so, and so isolated, it was my way of reaching, of reaching out and thank goodness for social media and being able to post a song and have somebody say, you know what? I needed that today. Thank you. And I needed it. I needed it more than anybody, but I was happy that it made some small amount of difference to somebody and that to, to get that feedback is, is what we need as singers. We need that feedback. We're, we're striving to build connections. That's what we're doing, right? When we're telling our, our stories, when we're performing, we, we feel the synergy from 
the audience onto the stage and we we thrive on that because it is that feedback that we we are communicating with another human being we're having a connection so to sing you know to an empty concert hall or to sing in my apartment to myself on on the piano is is hard but it's we have to sing like we have to sing we have that is our way of of communing like communing with others and communicating as well and and with our heart as well i think it i think we need it and i think this maybe sounds egoistic but like i think everybody needs it too i think we need art we need music we need to create right now um and if we can do it in one small way through social media or through a live stream or whatever you know we we want to do that it was like a little gift every day though angela it was yeah. more than just you sitting at your piano in your bedroom <laughs> it was uh, amazing how how it lifted everyone's spirits and i think it it goes to show that the fairly short-sighted view of particularly the UK government about not supporting the arts at the moment is, is testing on a number of fronts, not least because everybody during lockdown has sat at home enjoying the arts and using the arts to get themselves through. Yeah. And then suddenly we find ourselves with no support. Um, and it, it goes to show that without culture, without the arts, we'd be so much poorer as a oh, yeah. general community. And I think those of us who work in the arts, because we've been prevented actively from doing our jobs during this period, we we feel that acutely because we're so used to giving to other people as well, like you did with your lockdown songs. The, the act of giving is is really important part of our daily lives. And so um, it will remains to be seen, particularly over here, how we cope in the coming months. I think um, we're in for a very bumpy ride, quite honestly. Um, but I'm very glad to see that you're both going to be back on stage uh, relatively soon. Yeah, we're Yay! very we're together. Very <laughs> <Yay>! <laughs> <laughs> Having seen you both in those roles in that opera in that production, I can heartily recommend people go and watch. It's so great. I wish I could yes, sit we're myself. Terribly serious and very. <laughs> <terrible>. <laughs> You know, it's wonderful because it wasn't it wasn't originally planned, and of course, they just they had this idea. And uh, thank you know, goodness we were lucky to to be both considered. At, because Tara and I, yeah, we love singing with each other on stage. I mean, we're laughing half the time. It's we're not, us. <laughs> no, I know we're taking we're <laughs> We take our job very seriously, but it's sometimes really funny. And we we like we we thrive on the moments yeah. we actually perform together and they're so rare because we're both mezzos and there's, you know, I think Mozart is one of the only composers that, you know, wrote for uh, two mezzos to be able to share the stage and it's such a treat and it's such a gift. So we, we recognize how fortunate we are. Very much not, so. Not just that, lucky audience, quite honestly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful production. Yeah. is the other thing it is it's it really so beautiful. gives the audience everything they could want in in a Mozart opera oh, because to to look at it is and it's not a busy set no nope. it's, it's actually quite sparse um one tree <laughs> in particular you know yes. um but that's actually no bad thing I think it its simplicity is what works. Um, I'm yeah. hoping that they might live stream it because it would be lovely to be able to see it happen again. Oh. Fingers crossed. Yeah, that would be, be amazing. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know that they trust us enough. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> to keep it like serious. I mean, the last time, Angela, we were together, our wonderful, ago. wonderful colleague. There, there's, I don't know if you can see it from the public, but the, the whole floor of the set is a white sheet that's not pinned down. So it is always, always, always slippy. And God help the poor Fjordaligi. She came out and fell and is. I laughed and laughed and laughed. I couldn't sing. I couldn't look at her. I felt so bad for her. Poor Ivor Bolton looks up. He doesn't know what had happened. We are in stitches. I mean, like beside ourselves with laughter. Coming to, you know, one of these big Mozart finales, it's not going to work at the best of times when you're concentrating, but certainly isn't going to work. <laughs> laughing. But we somehow pulled it off with the laughing and everything else. And it was just, it's one of those pieces that, I don't know, it brings out the best in everybody because you have to give it all you have to make it work, I think. But also- It's a team game, isn't it? It's exactly. That's it. Yeah. That that opera in yeah. particular, so many ensembles and the <sighs> two main, you know, Fiordalici and Dorabella are always singing together. It's yeah. it's it's really I really like that. I really like. I feel supported. I feel like I'm part of something fun and exciting with everybody around me. I, I, you know, being raised in a big family, you know, I just, I really like that. Oh yeah, we're all here together. Isn't this great? We're all on stage. Isn't this fun? Like we're all singing the it same is. ensemble. It is. I love it. Yeah. It's funny because I, this morning, realized that it's the 150th anniversary of the premiere of Die Valkyra, which was premiered, oh. of course, in the National Theatre. So it made me think of my Valkyrie sisters and how much that's a team game as well. You very know, we, we very much have to think of opera like that, I think. It, I think people think it's all about the divas and the prima donnas and that, you know, it's, it's not in our experience, is it? No, not at all. And maybe, I mean, we are three Metsy, right? But... <laughs> this is true. Die drei Metsy. I think, you know, if people could look into the rehearsals and see how much, first of all, how much crack we have, but secondly, see how much we all depend on each other to make Can I just work. explain to an international audience that when Tara that says is. crack, she doesn't mean a drug? <laughs> but seriously, if people could look in and see how much fun is had in a rehearsal um, and how much we all kind of depend on each other to make something work. I mean, I've definitely been in shows with Angela. I can think of one in particular, the, the L'Enfant Les Sortilèges, and I had this little uh, toy dog thing that I was meant to carry with me all the time and I dropped it. I couldn't find the bloody thing. And Angela picked it up and Angela was like meant to be a cat doing this kind of like dancey business <laughs> at the front of the stage but somehow she managed to get me the, the dog before and I mean I wasn't even singing but she you know we're dependent on our colleagues as well so much there's the certainly in our line of singing there's very little um solitude singing or you know there's no you're never alone you're just never alone which is a wonderful thing well and when you and when you see yourself as a team player it just makes the whole experience stronger that just comes because you know okay you're rehearsing you know that you need the dog and if it's if it's in my vicinity I can totally pick it up and 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 improvise a way to give it to you and that's what we have to do because if one of our colleagues is struggling the whole we all feel it there's yeah. mm-hmm. it's this energy, it's this connection that we have with each other and we want to support each other. And that makes the whole experience just more 
enriched and and more satisfying and stuff happens that happens in in Mozart a lot I mean Tara was saying that Mozart has a huge cast all the time and you've got these mezzos and these sopranos that are switching parts because it's the same range and the same tessitura and if you're like a zwischenfach kind of singer then you can and so I know Tara's had experiences (laughs) where she's switched parts and this person that she's singing with has also switched parts and so you're singing each other's characters in a duet and you're just going where is my line (laughs) where are we (laughs) and there's no way to fix something like that no No way to fix it so you just have to commit to for five minutes you're going to sing a different character (laughs) and it's what I mean the worst thing for me and in fact it was Donald Wages who said that actually he didn't quite know how I did it where I was in the same costume singing a different role in the same scene as I had switching from Valgunda to Flosshilda oh in Rheingold and Goethe Demerung. Oh I mean, mind-bending is the only thing I can say because I had a muscle memory <laughs> my previous role. So every time I heard a bit of music, I was like, already? Oh, and then I had to go, no, it's not you yet. No, <laughs> please don't <laughs> sing that. You literally stand there and you're like, I don't, I don't know where we are. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And then you just have to hope for the best, really. Exactly. It's so funny. It's like Parsifal Blumenmädchen. You're like, is it me that should be singing? You're thinking, (laughs) I've definitely sung like three of these. (laughs) So will I just, I'll just come in. And then once you hear somebody else, you're like, no, no, no. Oh God. Yes, this is me. What comes next? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, if only people saw behind the scenes, I think they'd be quite shocked about how everybody always, it's a bit like a swan, isn't it? Gliding across a lake. But from the audience perspective, they see this glossy, supposedly well put together show. And if only they knew. I mean, there are things that go very wrong, though. I mean, one example yeah. was in, uh, it's always skeeky for us, um, where um, the boys had to bring in a terracotta vase, which they're supposed to drop and it's supposed to break, shatter on the floor. Only it didn't. It rolled off the stage onto the heads of one of the violinists in the pit. Oh, no. So Kirill Petrenko almost stopped conducting until he could see if she was all right. And she was okay, but it was one of those moments where... The collect, there was a collective <gasps> on stage <laughs> because there was nothing anyone could do. It just, it literally yeah. just went rolling off. You, I have a similar story. So we were, it's also, it's also with uh, Petrenko. We were doing Boris Gudnov and I was doing a small role. <laughs> My only Russian opera experience ever. And I had this world um, beach ball, this kind of world map. And I was thinking about, oh, isn't it so great? We own all this land, right? And I'm, I kind of got distracted because one of my friends was in the audience and I'm like, I wonder what he's thinking right now. I dropped the ball and the ball bounced because it's a beach ball, bounced onto the stage because I was on a table. I was supposed to just hold the ball and say my line. And I just kept throwing it up in the air. And I realized I couldn't throw it up in the air and actually see the conductor at the same time. So I dropped the ball. It goes bouncing off the stage. I'm watching it as it bounces into the pit. And I hear a screeching from the, from the orchestra, from the violin section, this, this awful sound. And the audience starts laughing. And this is not a comedy. (laughs) This is a really serious scene. And 
Petrenko, the conductor, he just puts his head down and started laughing and just kept conducting. He couldn't look at, me. He couldn't look at anybody. And because it was just a big ball just full of air, of course, nobody was hurt and it wasn't like a serious thing, but they were totally shocked. Like, you know, having something fall into your head as you would of be. Course. I will never forget his face. He could not look at me. He, st- he just put his head down and he just waved his hands time and then afterwards i saw him as we were going out to take our bows and he couldn't look at me he started laughing every time i walked by (laughs) anyway so yes things happen from the very very beginning of our career (laughs) we were singing the drei adelige weise In, in Rosenthal. We're, we're three orphans and we're in the opera studio. We're very young singers. This is very difficult. We're standing backstage, right? And what we hadn't realized was that one of our colleagues who used to open the door was now jumping in to sing somebody else's part as the zenger, you know? And he was usually the guy who would announce us. So he wasn't there to open the door. We're like, right, okay, cool. Whatever. Obviously. And next thing, poor Bettina. I'll never forget. She's like, go, go, go. We were already late. The three of us run to the front of the stage late. We've missed it. And we're like, <laughs> how bad it was. So like we we come off the stage. We're like, that's it. Our careers are over. We're never going to sing again. But we were called to do an interval curtain call, right? And like the two of us are like shrinking in. We're walking, whatever. We go and take the call. And next thing we could see the conductors coming. And we were like, run, just run. And we left the poor third sister, the soprano. We just left her there. We <laughs> ran. <laughs> we he just ate into her. And he was like, hey. And we, just, we just booked it back to our dressing rooms. It was the funniest thing. I'll never forget. Oh, I mean, stuff know. happens, doesn't it? It's so great it because now Tara and I both sing Octavian. And whenever that, we're off stage getting changed during that time, but in our dressing rooms, when we hear that music, those memories always come back. And it's Puts the fear of God in me. Yeah. But of course, you can't ever predict what's going to happen, even like moment to moment. There's lots of instances where we can't have any idea about what's coming next. You know, even the curtain might break or the, you know, a stage lift might We've been pack there. up or, yeah. We've been there too. Yeah, oh, yes. yeah. Oh, yes. The iron curtain was broken mm-hmm. and so we couldn't have any flammable yeah. scenery. And so the cozy that had one tree, they had no sheets on the floor, right? The the, the one that we're doing in September, there's, there's just lots of white sheets on the floor and then there's that one tree. So the one, when the iron curtain couldn't come down, we had no sheets, and then that one little tray in the back. It was ridiculous. <laughs> we had like one table, two chairs. That was the set. And I have to tell you, girls, that was the night I was there watching in the audience. Oh, that's right. Of course it was. Of course it was. <laughs> oh my gosh, oh, that was awful. It was oh, so funny. <laughs> That was just so funny. It was oh, for the, the first rest of my life. time I've ever seen you both on stage together, and I hit <laughs> that night. It was a the catastrophe. One time that everything was a catastrophe. Everything went wrong. Oh, <laughs> just so funny. Anything that could have did. I mean, it, it it was just one of those nights. We've all had them, and it <laughs> makes me miss it all more now because yeah. of that that That's feeling funny. of yeah. living on living on this sort of edge, this trapeze that we're on, you know. Live theatre. When it comes to going back to work, what are you most excited about the thought of? No, Angela, you're meant to say seeing me. 
Oh, yeah. See and Tarragon. Of course. Of course, of course, of course. But yes, and singing with you on stage and, and actually feeling the, I don't know what, what it's going to look like if they're going to, they'll probably have to make the audience, you know, at least half, half the size it usually is. I don't know how that's going to work, but just to have people there will be nice. Exactly. And like, there's definitely, especially to do a piece like Cozy, where we know the public have seen us in the roles. We know the public are, you know, expecting you know, a certain niveau also from us. I think that's a really great piece then to start with. I think when they're having to make changes in the theatre, you know, they've taken out the orchestra pit and the first four rows and they've covered that all in. They are raising the stage up and the cosy set was already up. So I think it won't be really affected. But I'm glad, how do I say this? I'm glad to come back to the career after a break to a house that we know so well with an orchestra we know so well and a public that know us so well and I think it's a very safe space to make ourselves as vulnerable as possible as quickly as possible because the longer I believe the longer I'm away from the stage the more difficult it is going to be to be vulnerable and and very open because this is the longest time that I haven't done that since maybe the age of 10. No, we're very lucky. And we, we both know that production so well. And those roles, yes. we, sing, we sing those roles all over, especially in Munich. And so it is very comfortable. It is a huge blessing. Again, like it wasn't, it wasn't planned. It was just, it was just kind of made up. And, and I'm so happy just to come back in that very comfortable way. Thank you to Tara and Angela for joining me and talking about lockdown, rediscovering a sense of community, life on the road, coping when things go wrong on stage in live performance and getting back to what they do best, singing. Please support Notes from Musicians' Kitchens by subscribing to our website, www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's only a tenner and every penny is going to help Musicians UK, a great cause. Make sure to tune in to the next episode where I'll be talking to another music professional about what food means to them. Keep an eye on Instagram to discover their identity. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. And remember, food is love. <laughs>